Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. It's another big day of news, ladies and gentlemen, as Boris Johnson prepares to set out his stall for the new Britain that he wants to see emerging from the COVID lockdown and unhindered by the ties that used to bind us to the European Union. In this very show, the Prime Minister will unveil global Britain in a competitive age. A 100-page doc, uh, page document on defence, security and foreign policy that will describe China as the biggest threat to our nation's prosperity, while at the same time describing how he he wants closer trade relations and more investment from the same country. I'm not quite sure how you square that circle. We'll try and figure that out uh, in the coming hours. As if that wasn't enough, there's a vote later on as well in the House of Commons on the new policing bill, which is seeking tougher sentencing for sex offences, but also stronger powers for the police to clamp down on acts of what they call annoyance, murders, uh, demonstrations, protest camps as well. And as the country reacts to the killing of Sarah Everard, there are also proposals to flood bars and clubs with plainclothes policemen and women to patrol for incidences of sexual harassment and assault. I mean, what could possibly go wrong with that idea? Have the government gone stark staring bonkers mad? We'll be asking Barrister Jerry Hayes and we'll be seeking the guidance of William Clouston as well, the leader of the SDP. 0344 499 is the number. Coming up, we'll be asking why the EU is being so recalcitrant and sulky about the AstraZeneca vaccine, making out that it might not be safe despite being told that it is by the European Medicines Agency. Surely they can't just be being spiteful about the Northern Ireland Protocol, could they? In the good news column, there's more evidence that the economy is going to bounce back fast. The governor of the Bank of England says he's expecting household spending to go through the roof. Summer festivals have already sold out and dinner and lunch tables have been booked by the thousands. David Buick, our friendly economist, will explain. 0344 499 As ever, of course, we need to hear from you. What are you planning? What are you hearing? And what are you being told out there? Tell us and we can tell everybody else. You'll listen to me, Mike Graham, on the home of Common Sense, the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course... Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Lots of news to go out this morning and plenty of time uh, in which to do it, of course. We want to hear from you too, 0344 because the economy, I am told, uh, is already showing signs of bouncing back in a massive way. Front pages this morning, very much all about the uh, EU's uh, bizarre behaviour com- uh, to do with the AstraZeneca jab. More and more countries now saying that they're going to halt the rollout of the vaccine uh, because they think it might cause blood clots, despite the fact that the European Medicines Agency says that that's actually not true, not provable, uh, and the fact that only seven or possibly 27 people uh, out of millions and millions and millions of people who have received the jab have had some kind of reaction to it uh, is a ridiculously low number. Also, of course, uh, lots of people talking about the rather sickening story about a police officer guarding the site where Sarah Everard's remains were found, sending a kind of twisted joke out on WhatsApp about it, which doesn't, I'm afraid, make the week any better for the police of this country. Let's talk to William Clouston, leader of the Social Democratic Party. Uh, William, a very good morning to you. Morning, Mike. Difficult to know where to begin, really. But let's start with this China situation, because on the front page of The Times today, we've got a story in which it says that Boris Johnson later on in this show, actually, will get up and and start his um, speech about Britain uh, in a competitive age, where at the same time as saying he thinks that China is a massive threat to our prosperity, he then says that he wants more investment from them and a better trade deal. Yeah, it's an odd one. I think the the British governments have struggled, haven't they, with China over many, many years. Mm. And you only have to go back to um, Osborne and Cameron's approach, you know, uh, six, seven years ago of rolling out the red carpet. 
Um, the problem with that approach was that it that actually, at the same time as doing that, they were under undermining our own uh, domestic capabilities. So we used to, for instance, we used to have a, a, a you know an effective British nuclear fuel industry. We didn't have to go to China and say, please, will you you know build us a power plant? Mm. So mm. I th I think what we what the government needs to do, and it's obvious uh, post pandemic, what we need to do is that we need to build more resilience domestically into what we do. And certainly, um, you've got to be very careful with the relationship with China. Obviously, China's, you know, massively powerful. Um, it's not a democracy, as we know. And I think the only solution for countries like us, as I say, is to build a more domestic focus, build resilience, reshore some industry and get a bit of uh, industrial capacity back. Yes, exactly right. Because I think, I mean, everybody still feels rather, I think, resentful about the fact that the entire world's economy, and not least to say uh, the world's health, uh, was affected massively by what came out of China this time last year, or maybe, you know, uh, this time last year minus a few weeks. And I mean, I would still like to see some kind of reparation being made by China to the rest of the world, not least to our country. Yeah, you can ask for that. And it's interesting, quite a few uh, journalists, commentators have asked for it. Uh, Douglas Murray wrote a piece um, at the end of last year in The Spectator about that. Um, yeah, I mean, you, you can argue for it. But, you know, uh, in the real world, that's not going to happen. China would just say no. And in any case, uh, as we, we had the WHO um, uh, investigation and the trip to China to establish the origin and some facts about the origin of the virus, and it was pretty inconclusive. And they still don't know whether, surprise. Yeah, whether it's, you know, and I actually know one of the people, you know, uh, well, a family friend actually from Australia was, was involved with that. And, and, and they, you know, they can't, they can't seem to nail it. So uh, that's where we are, you know. So I think reparations is, is not going to happen. I mean, I, I, I strongly suspect we will never find out mm. exactly where sort of, you know, point zero of this pandemic was. Right. I mean, but that's not really very satisfactory, is it? Because, I mean, in the end, that means that they can do whatever they want. They can get away with whatever they want. We will then still kind of, you know, kowtow to them because they're bigger and stronger and more powerful than we are. Uh, and therefore, they kind of flex their muscles all over the world and do whatever they like. And I think that's a pretty dangerous place to be. Yeah, but you can only, Mike, the problem with, with Western policy on this, you can only play it where it lays. And And, you know, I've made the point, countless times, the liberals that have run the Western economies over the last 20, 30 years have, have, have presided over gutting our industrial capacity. So at the moment, actually, if you want to buy things, generally it's, it's produced in China. And, and, the, and the, you know, the, the, the responsibility of that is, is literally uh, you know, trade and industrial policy from Thatcher through to New Labour and along. I mean, they, they, we've been educated by these liberals uh, to be indifferent to what is made where and by whom yeah. and and where we we're now in a situation where we're extremely vulnerable well the only re sober re reaction to that is to build up your own capacity again mm. well exactly right because we've allowed that to happen we've allowed china to become you know multifaceted and and able to produce things cheaply uh, and more efficiently than, than we do um, and we've mm. just let all of that um, business go. We've just let all of that manufacturing go. And I understand that. But, I mean, I thought we were supposed to be in post-Brexit mode, looking at kind of alternatives to bringing production back to the UK. Yeah, we must do. But uh, as I say, I would, I would challenge some of the underlying theory behind much of uh, policy over the last 30 years. As I say, just to go back to it, we're encouraged to not really care where things come, come from and actually how they're made. And, you know, if you go back, I mean, obviously, industrial relations in the 70s in this country were pretty poor. But a point that an, uh, a trade unionist would have made way back then would be that, is it fair for our industrial workers to be put up against people working in factories where conditions are literally appalling? Yeah. Now, we've been encouraged to think that it doesn't matter. Personally, I think we should develop trading relationships with, with democracies and with countries that have decent standards. That's what our priority should be. Yes, I mean, I think it's time that we took a stand, though, really. Um, and it could be that we can take that stand with other nations. I mean, for example, you know, when uh, we have the G7 meeting down in uh, uh, Torquay later on this year, you know, why mm. can we not put that on as a, as a part of the agenda? Well, we certainly should. I mean, you know, the, the point's been made many, many times about human rights abuses and, and other uh, problems. And, 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 the, and, you know, I think the trouble is, uh, to a great extent, um, you know, power does does determine what the outcomes are. And and China is in a very, very strong position. I mean, certainly in the global financial crisis of 08, mm. 
China kept the uh, the global economy going. It was the only country that grew through that effectively with huge stimulus and everyone else was in trouble. And again, you look around the world, the Eurozone is in deep, deep trouble. You know, the 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 the, the, North, the, the EU right now is behaving like some kind of maniac, isn't it? I mean, this business with the AstraZeneca um, uh, jab, mm. which we're talking about later on in the show, so I don't want to go into it in too much detail, but it, I mean, surely it can't just be that they're being, um, you know, sulky because of what's happening in Northern Ireland. But I'm beginning to think it, that's, what, that's all it is. I, I think they've played Northern Ireland politically from the start, Mike, I'm mm. afraid. It's, I'm, I'm sorry to say that, but I think they have. I think they've never been able to accept the concept of, of Britain doing its own thing and governing itself. They just can't accept it. And it's, 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 it's produced a sort of collective, among the political class there, a collective nervous breakdown. Yeah. And, you know, certainly some of the things that, you know, some of the major politicians have been saying in Europe, they reverted to sort of you know post post truth. I mean, if Trump had said some of those things, mm. the uproar would have been astonishing. Oh, exactly but right. They've said it and seem to have got away with and it. What they've also uh, done, William, is they've managed to convince an awful lot of people who weren't sure about leaving the EU that it was absolutely and utterly the right thing to do. Yeah, it's very very difficult to argue now. I mean, I certainly. I mean, the the the, the group in the population which took um, finally against in the teeth of opposition from our establishment took the Brexit vote across the line were a group, very important group, I call Democratic Remainers. Mm. People that voted to remain but wanted the result respected. Now, those that that's that category, that group of British people, and you talk about millions of people, must surely look at it now and saying, well, actually, I think the, the people that voted out have got it right. And again, we'll see going forward. I mean, all, a lot of the assumptions, we were told that it would cost us economically long term a country uh, making rules and laws and trade arrangements uh, and other legal, uh, you know, arrangements for itself in its own interests, mm. rather than having to go through a committee, effectively, what 27 other countries believe and what the, you know, some uh, agricultural um, lobby groups in Belgium think. Honestly, we will do better. And I think the, the certainly, you know, uh, you'll talk about it later, so we'll leave it. But, you know, the, the vaccine policy has demonstrated that, you know, you really are better off governing yourself. Well, I think that's absolutely right. Let's talk a bit about governing ourselves, because obviously it's been a big week for the police of this country. Um, you know, I'm not really even going to bother dignifying this ridiculous story about the police officer who sent us sort of what he thought was a joke about a dead woman. I just think that's mm. beneath contempt, obviously. Um, mm. But this idea that we're going to get from the police bill of putting plainclothes police officers in bars to patrol and protect women... I mean, that has just got a nightmare written all over it, hasn't it? I, I mean, I, it's the first time I've seen uh, that proposal. I mean, to some extent, I'll I, I just start by broadly saying, I think, you know, in, in, in the wake of what, what, you know, appears to have been a terrible, you know, murder, I think we, we, we get into a sort of moral panic, a collective moral panic, and a lot of people are looking at the bill that's going through Parliament now and, are, are, you know, suggesting various changes. The bill itself actually has some very good things in it, I'm not very happy about the uh, proposals for uh, protests, uh, which I think are largely aimed at the Extinction Rebellion uh, group, you know, blocking streets and so on. So that's a problem. There's a strange but, wording there as well, isn't there? Sort of an act of annoyance. I mean, you know, I annoy people on a daily basis. Am I going to be shut down? Yeah, it's hold the wrong placard up. <laughs> I mean, it, again, it puts the police in a very, very difficult position. And, I, you know, I, I, I was I was loath to... I think the, the the main problem we've got going forward with this is two-tier policing, mm. which we've seen over pretty much the last uh, 12 months. You know, you, you, in the summer, um, the police took a very, very um, softly, softly approach to BLM protests, some of which contravened the coronavirus uh, suppression regulations. Yeah. And, you know, and even took the knee at those protests. They, they failed to protect Whitehall. Some of our national monuments are desecrated. So a lot of people weren't happy with that. And then actually when some anti-lockdown people were protesting later on the year, they were certainly harsher. And what, you know, in Clapham, what started off as a, 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 a vigil um, to honour and, and show solidarity with a victim, later turned, probably, Mike, because some other people turned up as well, later turned into something else. Yeah. And the police are in a very invidious situation. I mean, what do they... Are they are they not going to apply the law then? So it's it's very very difficult. You've got you can't police different people and different groups in, in different ways. You, you and can't. you don't have to be but, a manual. But blatant, but blatantly, that's what they've done. And I think the only thing that you can say yeah. for sure uh, is that surely that highlights how ridiculous some of the laws are that they're being asked to to actually administer. Yeah, they, and, and they are. And you can't, as, as I say, I mean, I, I have the general sympathy for the 
frontline police officer trying to implement these things, but the guidance from above is is really quite inconsistent. You know, remember the police officers that dealt with the uh, with with Clapham later on did not get up in the morning to be to be abused and have you know a cab placards and spat at and so right. on. A lot of that happened, mm. uh, but they they don't they you know they they really there's been a lack of guidance and it's interesting. One person we're not speaking about is Sadiq Khan. Yeah, he's you gone know, very quiet suddenly, hasn't he? Every single time there's a problem, he's silent. You know, and, and, and if, there's, if there's some credit to be got from policing, but he's responsible for this. Yeah. And, you know, he's the sort of person, basically, that if there's a party on, he'll turn up. If there's any work to do, he won't. No, right. That is the problem with Sadiq Khan, and that is the problem, I think, with, with Cressida Dick. I don't think she should be staying in, in her post either, quite frankly, because I don't think there's anything that she's done uh, that has made the police look good uh, at any stage of her stewardship, shall we say. And I think that it's, very, it's still very unclear, for example what they're going to do at the next protest. Because, you know, there was one yesterday in Parliament Square, which was a sort of kill the bill one. It wasn't so much of a vigil. But there's going to be other vigils. There's going to be other protests. There's going to be other... Uh, there's clearly a rump of people in this country who are anti-police who will turn up to anything uh, for a punch-up with the cops. Um, and they're going to yeah. need to have a better idea of how to proceed, aren't they? No, they need to know where they stand. The police need to know where they stand. The frontline police officer know, needs to know that the people further up the, the chain, you know, the commissioner and the politicians involved are going to back them, but they need to know where they stand in mm. policing these things. I think there is a problem. I think more broadly, Mike, I think one of the, I said this about the BLM uh, issue, you know, a murder in Minneapolis, mm. and it sense caused a whole series of a wave of uh, protests all over the Western world. I think a lot of what we're seeing is actually a result of, of the pandemic and the suppression measures and the lockdown. Yeah. You know, you've got people sitting at home, staring at their phones and screens, getting agitated. And, and, and I think this is linked to the loss of what I call the common life. You know, the life in common. Usually, you know, when we were, to, when we were connected together, if something like this happened, you, you talk about it at work, you talk about it in the pub, you might talk about it to your hairdresser or whatever. And yeah. we, were, we were together. This process of isolating us has made people very uh, volatile. Yeah. And uh, in any case, whatever you think about it, in the bill and the rest of it, moral panics don't inform very well. And, and there's certainly not a, a period to make public policy switches on. I think you've got to be very careful mm. of that. I mean, I'm, I'm afraid to say public policy on things like women's safety, it's attritional. You've got to look at what works. Mm. And a lot, of, a lot of the measures that need to be in education and and you know, defensible space and lighting and the rest of it is boring work, but 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 sort of knee-jerk reactions in the atmosphere that we're in, I'm afraid, are not very helpful. But if you're going to be um, talking about putting more, say, undercover police officers or plainclothes police officers into social areas uh, where people mingle, surely it would make more sense just to have more actual uniformed cops out there more visibly so that people will go, oh, uh, there's a lot of police around here, but not commit any crime. I mean, surely that would be the obvious thing to do. Uh, but it's a bit like when the BLM people uh, were making their statements about how they wanted a society to improve. And when I asked them specifically what they wanted they didn't really have an answer in the same way that a lot of the women that i'm hearing speaking about how it's not safe to walk the streets they don't really know what the answer is other than that they don't want to feel scared and it's very difficult to fix that yeah no you've you made some good points there i think that's true i mean that's because basically i mean just first on the community policing issue that's that's the sdp's policy mm. and i'm afraid you know again i'll go back to khan uh, he has not prioritized that you know crime has gone up 30% since 2013, much of it under his watch. And, and yet, you know, police presence on the streets has, has declined. Mm. And, and again, to go back to the BLM thing, listen to all the, the uh, moral uproar in the summer. And a lot of, there's more heat than light there. Uh, if you, very few people in the States when that was happening, particularly politicians and commentators and journalists, uh, they, were, they, were, they were agitating it, mm. uh, making the situation worse, when all along, uh, proposals mattered. So in, in the States, if you look at, you know, some uh, excellent uh, measures taken in Camden, New Jersey, for yeah. instance, on community policing, it's boring, I'm afraid, and it didn't get many headlines, but in Camden, New Jersey, a com community policing program, you know, massively reduced uh, uh, interdictions that resulted in shootings. Mm. And that's the, sort of, that's the sort of policy, you know, attritional policy that you've got to have. I'm afraid headlines and, and moral panics. And in particular, Mike, the other thing I, I'm worried about is people dividing each other. You know, most people, 
you know, all of us, our, our wives and, and mothers and, and, and daughters and so on, that we're, the, the idea that men don't care about this is ridiculous. We're in it together. Yeah, of course. Absolutely. Finally, William, uh, the, uh, the, the election goes ahead in May. Um, obviously, you guys will be preparing for that. Um, hmm. It's going to be an interesting one, isn't it? Because clearly um, you've got the ability of the government and, and, and the sort of the, the, the sitting government, if you like, being able to make statements on a daily basis if they wish to about coronavirus. And therefore, you know, certainly in Scotland, uh, that's going to be a bit of a difficult one for anybody else who's not that party, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think they, I mean, I don't, I'm not so cynical to think that it's timed this way. I mean, the, the you know, the viral curve is the viral curve. And as you know, we've argued, you know, for the lockdown to be ended, uh, you know, as soon as, as it can be. But it, it looks pretty... Um, uh, convenient uh, and uh, and uh, uh, you know it's a good macro environment yes. for the Conservatives certainly uh, you know going into elections on the sixth of May um, with 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 the country opening up. I mean the interesting thing you only have to look at the polls, um, the national polls now, and the Conservatives are riding on you know anything from sort of six percent leads to ten percent leads. Mm. So I suspect they'll do pretty well. We've got a, you know candidates up and down in the in the locals all over the country. Um, you know, so we're setting benchmarks, really. Uh, we're a small party, but we're growing very rapidly and we'll try our hardest. Well, it's going to be fascinating to see. William, thanks very much indeed. William Clouston, the leader of the Social Democratic Party. We will bring you, of course, all the results of the election as they happen. Uh, it's happening in May, uh, but we will be entering into that election period that we so often do uh, in the few weeks before that. Uh, so we'll be looking at all of the uh, the issues, all of the, the, the different candidates from different parties doing different things. The Reform Party, of course, the new reformed Brexit Party, the SDP, also anti-lockdown, uh, and of course the main three parties as well in England. Uh, and of course, you also get Plaid Cymru, you'll also get uh, in, in Northern Ireland, all the local parties there. And in Scotland, the SNP, of course, uh, with Nicola Sturgeon. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Lots going on today. We've got lots of your calls to take as well. 03444991000. Some very strange things going on uh, in the European Union at the moment because it would appear, despite the fact that the European Medicines Agency has said uh, that the AstraZeneca vaccine is absolutely and utterly safe to use, uh, several countries in the EU, kicking off with Ireland, uh, have said that they're going to pause the rolling out of it because they want to investigate whether or not it causes blood clots, despite the fact... Uh, uh, that millions and millions of people have had the vaccine uh, without getting blood clots. Let's talk to David Wooding, political editor of The Sun on Sunday. David, very good morning to you. Morning, Mike. Very nice to see you. I haven't seen you, I don't think, all year so far. So so welcome and to the no, show. we've all been locked down. Mike. Well, I know. Well, I mean, I haven't seen barrack. you on here, but I haven't seen you on here either. I don't think we've been able to get a hold of you. You've been a busy boy. Um, uh, this is all very strange, isn't it? I mean, surely to goodness, it's not just the European Union being sort of sulky about Northern Ireland, is it? Oh, perish the thought. Mike. I mean, perish incredible. Well, if you look at what's, what's been going on with this AstraZeneca vaccine, first of all, the European Union couldn't get enough of it. Right. They were, in fact, talking about an export ban to stop it being shifted outside the EU because they were worried that we were getting more doses than they were. They were so desperate to get their hands on it that they even tore up the Northern Ireland Protocol and tried <laughs> to erect a hard border yes. across the island of Ireland. And then uh, a few months, a couple of weeks later, we then get... Um, uh, uh, Macron, Emmanuel Macron, the president of France, saying that it was uh, didn't work on over 65s. Yeah. And now, of course, we've got all these countries saying it's a de it's a threat to life. So you can't help thinking, make your mind up, lads. Do you do, do you want this vaccine? Yeah. You're desperate to get your hands on it, or are you just jealous that that Britain is uh, is rolling it out a lot quicker? Well, that's the thing. I mean, I heard an EU official talking this morning as if they were somehow granting us. Uh, the vaccines that we had, you know, saying things like, you know, we have exported billions of vaccines to you from the EU. Well, no, you haven't. AstraZeneca have <laughs> from Belgium, where they've got a factory. You know, it's nothing to do with the EU, you know. Absolutely right. And let, let's get this all into perspective as well about the threats here. Um, it, it, it's not a million to one shot 
that you me into one chance that you might be struck down. It's a, it's a, it's it's about that actually. There were seventeen million of these jabs being given, right. and thirty seven cases of blood clots. Well, yeah. so it's two 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 in a two in a million chance. Uh, and in fact, that is about the average number of people who get a blood clot every day of the week. Yes, you might as well say you're more likely to be knocked down by a bus if you've had a, an AstraZeneca jab right. because. The, the two are not are not related. We've got the World Health Organization saying it's fine. The European Medical Agency even. But you know, it's these countries again, isn't it? It's Germany, it's France, yeah. it's the it's the. But it's my the, suspicion is the European because it, because Union it's kicked off in Ireland initially. I, I, mm. I smell a rat. You know, I think it's definitely mm. something to do with this because they're also being quite sort of bitter and twisted about suing the UK, saying that you know we've broken this treaty, which of course doesn't necessarily apply to us anymore because we're not any longer in the European yeah. Union. Yeah, they've taken Brexit very badly. I fear that's yeah. what it's about, Mike. It's uh, it, it's very bad, and um, I, of course they're looking there. Uh, Britain saying um, Brexit uh, because we're outside the EU. We're zooming ahead. We yeah. have we, in the UK. We've uh, vaccinated more people than the entire twenty-seven other countries of the European Union put together. Yeah. Um, we are zooming ahead and ready, in fact, to unlock. The country quicker than anybody else. I mean, everybody's we're talking about everybody being vaccinated by the end of July. It's it's likely to be quicker than that. And whereas uh, in some countries over 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 in Europe, they're, they're talking about September, October, November before they get anywhere near vaccinating the uh, the adult population. So yeah. they, they do have they do have a grouse here. They really do. And I mean, I don't see anything really coming from from the legal situation that they're trying to force on the UK. Do you? No, not at all. Um, I mean, the, 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 in fact, they could find themselves the victims of uh, legal cases themselves because these suspensions could delay the EU's target of vaccinating people. Lives could be lost as a result mm. of not vaccinating people. I mean, it's, there's another story in the newspapers this morning, Mike, saying that it's now been officially recognised, the statistics, that, that the... Uh, that the virus, the coronavirus, COVID-19, is the most deadly uh, disease of any type, the biggest killer in the past century, yeah. in the past hundred years. Right. So, I mean, that, that, that's, that's, that, that's a fact now. And, uh, and they're saying, well, we're not going to give you a jab for it. Well, I mean, this is it. I mean, it's not really something that you would particularly wish to play politics with and political games with, but it seems as though that's all uh, that they want to do at the moment. I've mm. um, just got breaking news for you. Prince Philip has left hospital, apparently, after spending a month getting treatment. So that's good news for the that's royal family news. and for the Queen. Uh, they've been in deep, desperate need of a bit of good news for, uh, for the last week or so. But let me ask you about Boris Johnson, because um, quite a big week for him. He's making his speech this morning about the, uh, uh, the new British and the new kind of foreign policy that he wants to see happening uh, with China in particular. Um, he wants to, to, to make it clear that they, he sees China as very much of a threat, but he still wants more investment from them. Uh, and the police bill, which is going to get voted on tonight. What do you think is going to happen with the police bill, first of all? Well, that, that's a fascinating one because there's a backdrop again talking about uh, events being politicised over, the, over the, the, the pandemic. I mean... There's been quite a lot of politicisation of the uh, of the poor tragic death of, uh, of of Sarah Everard, and um, uh, you know there are, there are people saying they're going to vote against this bill because it will give police more power, and they don't like the way the police have behaved. At the end of the day, it's going to be a, a fiery debate, I would think. Mm. Um, I, I would suspect it will get through, but uh, yeah, it'll, it'll not be without its moments, I would think. Well, I think so. And also for Sir Keir Starmer, another tricky one for him to try and navigate because he can't seem to win for losing, can he? No, um, and the difficulty here is uh, it's trying to work out where the head of the people are mm. along with where, where, where his party is thinking. And you can't help... You can't help them uh, thinking sometimes that that when you're in opposition, you have to land a blow on the on the government of the day, mm. and so he'll be be wondering about whether he's going to be seen to be politically uh, using it as a political football or yeah. whether he's doing right by the people of Britain and that's the difficulty he's got. And that is the problem as well because you can't really blame the government for the dangers on the streets of, of say London for example when Sadiq Khan uh, is basically in charge of the police here. Well this has been one of the in interesting and annoying uh, issues of, the, of this tragic incident. Uh, um, you, you find a lot of um, uh, Labour supporters blaming uh, Priti Patel, the Home Secretary, for what's happened here. Um, a Conservative uh, Home Secretary, of course. Uh, well, of course, the Home Secretary doesn't have any power, any control over uh, what police do operationally. So that decision of the way the police 
uh, reacted in that uh, vigil, vigil, vigil the other the other night um, w w was nothing to do with the Home Secretary whatsoever, and she could have had no influence on that. The only the only influence that the Home Secretary is on national issues such as terrorism and mm. security. Uh, and then and then you get some Conservative people who are blaming the. Uh, the mayor of London, uh, Sadiq Khan, because he's a Labour figure for what's happened. And, and of course, he does have more control over London police, uh, the Metropolitan Police Force, than, than the Home Secretary in that sense, funding and, and op but not operational mm. matters. So both sides are using this politically. And in fact, uh, the, <laughs> that's, that's the problem. And then you have people going out demonstrating, people going out rightly wanting to lay flowers yeah. and pay their respects. But there's, a, there's an element of... Um, uh, agitators there who uh, try to hijack uh, events, as happens all the time. Yes. And, of course, you're going to hear it again in political debate too. Band wagonery, I'm beginning to think. Well, we mustn't forget. Yes, we mustn't forget that, you know, you know that, that what, what happened there was a very, very unusual case of a police officer... <laughs> Uh, it is alleged abducting a, uh, a woman off the streets, and um, uh, you know that that is that it's not a case of there, there is um, um, people at large running round causing havoc to women. Yes, mm. we have to protect women, uh, but but the the, the the actual issue that, that was being protested against is not quite the same as as what's happened here. No. And we must not forget that at the centre of this is a family who've been bereaved and a, a young woman who's lost their life. Exactly right. Well said, David. Thank you very much indeed. David Woodney, political editor of The Sun, on Sunday. Uh, as you heard in the news, police officer Wayne Cousins has been remanded in custody at the Old Bailey until a plea hearing on July the 9th for the alleged murder and kidnap of Sarah Everard. And the provisional trial date has been set for October the 25th. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, it's time to say a very, very good morning to uh, our good friend, Mr. Jerry Hayes. Jerry, very good morning to you. How are you? Good morning. It's good to be on the home of common sense. Well, indeed. And you summed up, you summed up the problems with this particular piece of legislation in about 15 seconds. Yes. I mean, I mean sadly, what... in Parliament, it takes them two days to come to these kind of conclusions. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but then, 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 then the tribal people will go through their particular lobbies without thinking about it. Mm. How can we have a situation? How can we allow a situation where you have undercover officers in bars? You know, we had this before. There was an undercover officer years ago in the 1980s in a gay bar. Mm. And what happened was, believe it or not, he got touched up in a gay bar. No way. But yeah, and then what did he do? He took this member of parliament to court and the fellow was acquitted. Yeah. You remember the days of uh, public indecency when yes. the police used to sit on the roof of public toilets looking down to see what was going on. Mm. Do we really want to go back to that again? Of course we not. No. It's just not British at all. Well, it's not. It also occurs to me that if people know that there are plainclothes men and women wandering about in bars, what's to stop some from pretending to be one of them and walk up to a woman uh, and say, excuse me, madam, um, I'm an undercover police officer. I noticed that uh, you seem to be looking a little bit anxious. Uh, could I walk you home? You know, oh, know. and all sorts so, of terrible things could happen. Yeah, it's, it's like this business of uh, there was some uh, green peer who said all men uh, should be curfewed. Ah, yes, Jenny Jones, yeah. After six, after, at six o'clock. Well, when you think the overwhelming majority of murders and domestic violence against women is in the home, yes. it puts women in more danger. I mean, you've got these balmy people saying balmy things. Now, the bill that you were talking about, by and large, is not a bad bill at all. Mm. There's quite a lot of common sense, and I think that's why Labour was supporting it. But then you've got public nuisance. Now, public nuisance, I've, I've, I've written it out because it's really quite important. And for public nuisance, it's been redefined. You've got to show serious harm to the public. Yeah. That is great. I have no problem with that at all. And you look at it. They give you examples of it. Uh, suffers death or disease. Yeah, that's fine. And then suffers loss or damage to property. Yeah, agree with that. Suffers serious distress. Yeah, agree with that. And then it comes to suffers serious annoyance. 
annoyance. A lot of people say you are seriously annoying. Well, I, did, I mean, I did mention that in the, in the first hour of the show. I said, you know, I annoy people on a daily basis. I mean, many of them, um, people that I supposedly am close to and even love me, but I still annoy them. I mean, does that mean yeah. that they can call the police on me and get me locked up? They probably quite like to do that. Well, if you do it in public, you could be. Yeah. And you know what the penalty could be? Ten years imprisonment. Goodness gracious. I mean, I'm not a fan of Steve Bray. I mean, he used to annoy the hell out of us when we were down yeah. at College Green with his yeah. big loud speaker, his loud hailer. But, I, you know, all I ever wanted for the police to do was to ask him to desist while we were actually broadcasting rather than yes. bellowing into our yeah. tent, which made it very difficult to hear what we were saying. Um, but I wouldn't particularly want him locked up for it because he's got the right to do it. Yeah. And then there's this bit about one-man demonstrations. Really? What's the matter with these people? Mm. I think when you've got a government, and all governments do it after a while, is they see something awful happening where people are inconvenienced. Like, do you remember the um, extreme extinction? Um, yes. Rebellion, uh, Antifa, Black Lives Matter, yeah. all those sorts of things. They say, look, this is absolutely appalling. We've got to stop it. Yeah, but you do it with sensible policing. We are policed by consent. Yes. But not at the moment. Well, we used to be. I mean, I don't know if that's actually true at the moment, because when you see what happened at Clapham Common, I'm sort of in two minds about it, Jerry. I'm interested in what, what, you, what you think of it. Because on the one hand, part of me thinks if the cops hadn't been there, there wouldn't have been a problem. But equally, they are under obligations, I suppose, from their, uh, from their senior officers to enforce a law which they've been told they have to enforce. Well, that's the problem, because Pretty Patel sensibly says you've got to protect the public when it comes to the pandemic. There should be no uh, illegal gatherings because there could be a risk mm. to public health. That's fair enough. But she says you've really got to enforce it now, because before it was very, very laid back. And yeah. there were all sorts of criticisms. You can't say to the police, you must do one thing. But on the other hand, these are demonstrations which we should allow to happen. Mm. The other thing I think we're going to have to have a look at is I did notice on one of the news clips, and I know there's an independent inquiry on this, but that towards the end, when trouble started, there seemed to be a lot of white males who were shouting and screaming at the police. Yeah. What did it got to do um, with them? And this is a real tricky one for the police at the moment. They're, 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 they are in, in, in extreme difficulties yes. on how to enforce a law which really is draconian. And how long is this law on lockdowns going to be on the statute book? Mm. Well, I can tell you, it'll be there forever. They won't get rid of it because they say, oh, you know, it could come back in, a, in another variant. We have got to do this. That, to my mind, and I'm not one of the anti-mask peoples and one of these people saying lockdown is terrible and it's a disaster. But the fact of the matter is our liberties are slowly draining away and people are just sleepwalking into it. Yes, and people are accepting it incredibly sort of easily, it seems to me. You know, there are people uh, who say you shouldn't be going out. And I'm going, well, hang on a minute. There's a lot of people who actually are out. I mean, I was out on Saturday um, doing a bit of shopping down in Sussex, and there was an awful lot of people out and about, an awful lot of people driving around. And in lockdown, uh, it's not really happening anymore, in, as far as I can see. But I think the problem as well um, for demonstrations is that, you know, we have had the right to demonstrate for a very long time in this country. Yeah. And I think they're wrong-headed to try and stop people from doing it. And it seems to me, I mean, I don't know what you think about this. Why can't they have... A place to demonstrate where you could go, you know, for, for example, Parliament Square, if you wanted to demonstrate, cordon off an area so they're not marching up and down the mall, they're not throwing stuff over the, the fence at uh, Downing Street, but they're always going to one particular place to demonstrate. And that, that sounds a bit kind of antediluvian, but what do you make of that? I think it's, it's, it's a perfectly sensible suggestion. Uh, how you enforce it, I don't know, because you could find yourself corralling people mm. in, in various areas. But there's no reason why we shouldn't look at it. But something I ought to mention, because it's been all over the newspapers today. Now, I, I quite like Keir Starmer. I don't know him very well, but he seems to be relatively sensible. But now he is actually almost as misleading as the prime minister, because he has been putting out press releases saying, look, that deface a statue, you get 10 years, yeah. right? Five years. That is not true. Well, I can tell it's not true because it's on the front. You can tell it's not true because it's on the front page of the Daily Mirror, a worse newspaper <laughs> you would struggle to find in a, in a, in a hall of mirrors. Yeah, I, I, it, it's nowhere. And I've actually tweeted to, to fellow lawyers and said, look, tell me, where did it say the sentence of rape is five years? Right. I have this book on sentencing here. On, on sexual offences. And its starting point 
is 15 years custody with a range of 13 to 19 years and life. Yeah. It's not five years. Why say these things? Because at the end of the day, it frightens women. Yes. And it's but isn't, women but isn't this also gaming. indicative, Jerry, of the kind of paucity of, of political thought these days and political kind of ideology? Because they literally just pluck stuff out of the air, say it, um, and then let it just hang there. They don't come back to it. He'll never mention it again, probably. It's just oh, no. one. It's a one-hit headline, isn't it? Yeah, I, I, absolutely right. And the other thing, nothing about harassment of women in the bill. There, there is legislation on harassment and stalking and things like that, which have been on the books for for, for, for a fair old time. But there has to be a cause of action. It has to be one, um, you know, more than more than mm. once. Usually to a particular individual. I've got no objection to have like a sexual offences register for stalkers. I think it seems a perfectly sensible thing to do. Women should be protected. Mm. But again, you've got to be careful of the mythology. Um, as we said earlier, the majority of women are more at risk at home than they are on the street. Uh, what happened to that poor girl, Everard, um, is very, very rare. But it makes women think that they are not safe mm. on the street. And that's what we've got to do. I mean, crime actually in certain areas is falling, but people think it's rising. People think that judges are being soft, and actually they're not being soft at all. Magistrates may be, but the, the Crown Court judges, again, you've got the guidelines which have been put there with the assistance of politicians. Yes. But there is a problem, isn't there, not, Jerry, with um, the early release schemes that go on, and they're talking about clamping down on that and trying to make those sentences more lengthy, and perhaps maybe lengthy is not what they need to do with them. What they need to do is just to make sure that if you get sentenced to 15 years for rape, you stay in for 15 years, you don't get out after seven. We actually, I was only thinking of this this morning, discussed this three years ago. And the reason I remember it particularly well, because mm. I was at Green Crown Court and I was outside and it was talking to you and it was railing, it was howling with wind. Now, the I remember that. that. Yeah, yeah. Those actual, um, look, for most sentences, you serve half um, once you've, once you've been, well, you, you're released after half and the rest is on license, mm. like a suspicion. Right. You get 25% off if you plead guilty at an early stage at, at the Crown Court. And if it's really serious stuff, you know, the serial sexual offences that is mentioned in this uh, act or serious acts of violence, you get an extended sentence, which means you do two thirds of it. You've got to give people uh, an incentive to, to, to plead guilty. Otherwise, the courts are going to be clogged up and the prisons are going to be clogged up. Mm, yes. None of the stuff is going to come in, you know. You know it's not going to come in. Well, this is one of the reasons <laughs> I wanted to talk to you. Well, this you is know. one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you, Jerry, because yeah. many of our conversations are surrounding the fact that the criminal justice system uh, is yeah. not currently working terribly well because there aren't enough courts that are open. There aren't enough oh. judges hearing enough cases. There aren't enough yeah. um, uh, speedy methods of putting people through the system. And so how no. are they going to make it any better? They're not. That's the whole thing. Unless you invest money in the criminal justice. I'm not talking about money for lawyers. I'm actually talking about investing in the infrastructure, yeah. which is falling apart. They say, oh, COVID this, COVID that. Look, we had 35,000 Crown Court trials delayed of the backlog well before COVID. Now it's something like 50,000 or mm. something like that. Mm. And they will come along soon and say, well, you don't really need jury trials, do you? It's going to happen. It really is going to. We are going to have this conversation, I reckon, in about six months' time. Right. And, and there'll be what? So there'll be a sort of job lot of, of some judge sitting there, uh, just rubber stamping things as they come across his desk. Yeah, with a couple of uh, with a couple of magistrates. Oh, that's just what you want, isn't yes. it? Yes. Well, I must admit, here's another thing. I'm slightly off to the side, but I was rather disturbed to see the judge in the Meghan and Harry case against Association newspapers deciding uh, to award her a victory without actually having heard the case. That was a bit odd, wasn't it? I, yeah, I, I mean, it's not, I, it's not what I call it's not what I call justice. <laughs> no, I'm afraid it's not my area of law at all. Uh, but I just thought it was rather strange. Mm. And also, the other thing there was—I um, won't mention his name, Sperry's blushes—but there was a, a hedge fund manager, manager who was a Tory uh, donor mm. who was acquitted by a, a magistrate, a professional magistrate, not a lay bench. And of course, he had to give reasons. Juries don't give reasons. And giving reasons can be very unpleasant mm. because it will stop women coming forward. And yes. we don't want that to happen. No, exactly right. So, I mean, on balance, is there anything in this bill that worries you, I suppose, would be my question. Well, the, the thing that worries me is public order. Mm. And it's the lack of freedom. 
uh, one-man demonstrations we've taken. That bloke, I can't remember his name, with the Euro hat on. Yeah, he Steve was very But, I mean, technically, you could get 10 years now because we were seriously annoyed. I get seriously annoyed every time I see uh, Jer- not Jeremy, well, Jeremy to a certain extent, but certainly Piers Corbyn on the TV. <laughs> and I want to throw a brick at the TV. Right. So I'm seriously annoyed. Should you go to prison for it? Well, this is the thing. I mean, you know, there are many things that you could legislate for, but you can't yeah. legislate for people being annoyed, surely, to heavens, because, um, you know, no. one, one person's annoyance no. is another person's glee, isn't it? Absolutely right. Absolutely. I find it very distressing. And also, undercover officers in bars. Yeah. That, is, really that is an absolutely idiotic this idea. This is a police state. This is what the stars are used to do, isn't yeah. it? Right. And exactly. Yeah. He looks a bit dodgy over there. He look, Do you know, years ago, well, this is slightly off piece, but... It shows how you can get it wrong. I had an expert, and I was utterly convinced before I put him in, in the witness box that he was drunk. He was slurring his words. He was all over the shop. And he said, um, Mr. Hayes, you think I'm drunk? I said, well, he says, I've got Parkinson's. Right. You know, all sorts of miscarriages are going to happen if we have undercover agents. Well, I mean, we were talking about just in the office before we went to, went on the air. And I mean, what if what if you as an individual undercover police officer see something going on in a bar, somebody kissing somebody, and you yeah. uh, deduce from what you've seen that somehow one of the participants is not that willing? What are you going to do? Are you going to burst, burst a break them apart and go, which one of you doesn't want to be doing oh. this? I mean, what? It's ridiculous. Just It's just good. And, you know, at school discos and oh, the slow dance. Do oh. they even have school discos anymore? Don't they? What do they call them? Proms, don't they? Is well, I, th- I think that. I mean, I think it's even worse than it was when you and I were young, Jerry, where we used to just stand around on the side looking embarrassed. I think they're not allowed to go anywhere near oh, each other now. Stand on the side looking embarrassed because no one would dance with us. Right. Well, no, because <laughs> you didn't want to ask anybody just in case they said no. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, actually. It's yeah. True. Very much so. Are... Well, listen, it's going to be fascinating. I mean, so Labour, so you saying you think Labour are going to vote with this bill? Because I'm under the impression that they're not going to. Said they would to begin with. Yeah. But they've and there's there is some good stuff. I'll give you thing, an example of some which I think is good, mm. and that is they're doubling uh, the sentence for an assault on emergency workers. Yes. Which is am- through uh, nurses, um, police officers, things like that. At the moment, it's only a year and you're not going to go to jail. Now it'll be two years. I think it actually should be a little bit more because, you know, it's a, it's a serious stuff. So there are some good things there. And in fact, years and years ago, in 1986, I think it was, I was an advisor to the Association of Ch- Chief Constables mm. on the present Public Order Act, as it is now. And I tell you, the problems that cause, the problems this is going to cause, are going to be astronomical. And you're going to have people on your programme saying, Mike, what's happened? Yeah. I was in a bar the other day and I've just been arrested for kissing a girl. Right. Well, I mean, there have already been cases of people being arrested for speech um, crime, um, hate crime. I mean, look at what's happening in Scotland with the hate crime bill, where not only can you be in trouble for saying something in, out in the street, but you can now be in trouble for saying something in your own home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and and there, I only discovered this the other day. People are being, barristers are being hauled up before the, the Brit- Bar Standards Board for a d- disciplinary offence. And the offence is unconscious racial bias. And that's now an offence? Apparently. When did that um, happen? Apparently. <laughs> I don't know. But I mean, what have we come to? I know. And how do you define that even? I don't know. We, I've got a I've got a course on it uh, in a couple of weeks' time. I mean, can so I can I be? I'll saying, tell you. I'll tell you what it is. Well, please do. Yeah, because I mean, I would like to know whether I suffer from any unconscious inability to pay my taxes. You know, um, and whether or not uh, they're going to start saying to you, uh, "Well, you obviously didn't know that you were doing something wrong, so we're going to punish you anyway." Yes, because you had a thought that I don't want to pay my tax. Bill. Yeah. Oh, that's unconscious bias, isn't it? Well, it could be. I mean, who knows? Yeah. I mean, it's madness, isn't I mean, it? It's literally in Alice in Wonderland territory now. Thing is well. And the, la- the last thing, because I know you've got other people to talk to, on this public news... Yeah, not as interesting as you, Normally the prosecution... Yeah, normally the prosecution have to prove, oh, no, the burden of proof has been reversed mm. so that the person who is actually accused of it has to prove his defence. That's mad. That goes... It's surely, wrong. Surely that goes against every kind of... Um, ideology yes. of jurisprudence doesn't it yes and these muppets just nod this stuff through dear god i'm not more depressed now than i was when i started talking to you <laughs>
Yeah, sorry about that. Thanks very much indeed. <laughs> See you soon. Jerry Hayes, Tribunal Barrister, former Conservative MP. The world has literally gone bonkers. So now the burden of proof is not on the person uh, who's trying to prove that you did something wrong. It's on you to prove that you didn't do something wrong. That's amazing. That's unbelievable. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Let's talk now to Robert Clark, who's Defence Research Fellow at the Henry Jackson Society. Robert, very good morning to you. Welcome. Afternoon, I should say. Uh, good afternoon, Mike. How are you? Yeah, very well indeed. Um, you set out rather well for us uh, last week, I think it was, what uh, the defence side of this review is likely uh, to, to say. Um, have you seen anything that's changed what you said before? Uh, what, what are we expecting today? Okay, so today is the the first part of the integrated review, and it's going to concentrate on the more on the foreign the foreign policy aspect. The defence uh, paper will be coming out next Monday, so we'll know more then hmm. uh, regarding you know issues that I've spoken about regarding troop cuts and and uh, reduction in armour capability. Right. But uh, today is really the announcement of uh, really where Britain's role in the world is, um, and it's important to note this is really in 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 this different age, both uh, post Brexit age, which gives uh, the UK enormous opportunities. Also in a post-COVID age, which uh, actually poses sort of challenges uh, to uh, to the UK going forwards. Yes, indeed. I mean, watching the European Union in recent days has been quite bizarre, hasn't it? The way that they're behaving mm. with regard to the AstraZeneca vaccine. I mean, the French now saying that they're thinking about suing AstraZeneca for not supplying enough of the vaccine, while at the same time halting the rollout of the vaccine on the grounds that it might not be safe, despite being told by the European Medicines Agency that it's fine. No, it's a bonkers situation at the moment with the European Union and the uh, the vaccine rollout. And I think uh, this is possibly the the, the final uh, reminder for, for anyone who really needed it, that the UK is actually better off outside of the European Union. Nobody's talking about, uh, you know, reducing uh, those relations with European partners and, and uh, organisations. But, uh, you know, as a as a member, as a member nation, I think it just affirms that the UK has got so much more uh, potential outside of the, uh, the political uh, trading bloc than it than it did within. Yes, exactly right. And what about this China situation? Because it's kind of counterintuitive in one hand to say that China is the biggest threat to Britain's prosperity, but then in the same breath to basically say, well, how about we do more business with China and how about we get more investment from China into the UK? No, absolutely. Uh, I'm uh, I'm quite surprised by the uh, the dual tone uh, in language uh, regarding uh, regarding China. Mm. Uh, first of all, it's important to note that with China, it does... Um, it, it, it basically describes China as the, the number one threat to the UK's economic security. Um, we've seen this in the last few years with uh, IP theft, uh, the, uh, the use of dual use technology pioneered here in the UK. Um, now, this is all like a relatively recent um, development that, that really the UK really been known about uh, for the last for the last sort of 12 months. Um, so it's important uh, to actually acknowledge that the UK uh, have actually identified the, this, this economic threat from China. Mm. Um, but yes, to, to then uh, say, you know, the, the, the desire to increase investment in certain areas. Um, it was noted, however, that uh, I think uh, following on from that, uh, and I know the Foreign Secretary has stated it this morning, he's clarified it, um, you know, that won't be in the critical national infrastructure, for instance, um, and there will be uh, the appropriate measures, security measures taken place to guard against that. But I do think it gives a sort of mixed signal uh, regarding the UK's approach to China. It's almost, uh, you know, it wants to have its cake and eat yeah. it. And I think it's it's the wrong message, really. Well, exactly. I mean, there's a lot of people, particularly on the back bench of the Tory party, who want to see um, a mm. harder line being taken by Boris, not least because of what's happening um, to the Muslim communities there, but also uh, because they have been responsible for pretty much shutting down the entire world thanks to uh, the coronavirus. Yes, yeah, so I think that that last point you made is actually quite uh, quite important. When I mentioned the uh, this distinction between the post Brexit age of opportunity and this this post COVID age mm. of challenges, uh, you know, it must be remembered uh, China's role in this. Uh, not least, it's uh, you know the cover up from uh, you know back in December two thousand and nineteen. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, uh, it's it's underhand subversion within the World Health Organization. You know, it's had a very destabilizing influence on the world more broadly. I think a lot of people are almost forgetting that, um, and this really should be remembered going forward. The mm. the, the you know, the effect that China do have. And is there a sense that China's become a bit more hawkish in recent years as well? Because as they've become wealthier and as they've become a more powerful economy, they've also started to take less notice of the rest of the world, haven't they? Um, I would say it's not even been the last few years. It's it's really been the last uh, the last several decades. Uh, this uh, this wolf warrior diplomacy of the uh, the Chinese generals, uh, the PLA army that, uh, that basically all, in all in effect run Beijing, um, it's this idea of uh, it's put forward by uh, by a very well known American um, 
uh, American commentator, the the hundred year marathon, uh, and it basically lists that uh, you know China have absolute you know global hegemonic ambitions uh, for the uh, for the twenty forty nine um, centenary of the People's Revolution. So um, yes, it's not it's not been the last few years. It's really been this China. The whole thing of China should be remembered in this long term strategic threat uh, and competitors to the UK, and with that comes the military threat as well. Yes. And I think that's, I suppose, something to be quite alarmed about. I mean, Boris is talking about the world um, needs Britain to be global, um, using the vaccine rollout as an example of how great Britain is, which is which is terrific. And everybody, I think, would, would agree with him on, on that front. But how global can Britain really be? Because as time has gone, you talk about the last few decades and in the last few decades, I mean, Britain's influence has kind of waned in an awful lot of areas, hasn't it? Yes, this, this idea of, uh, of global Britain and how, how will it actually be achieved, um, I wouldn't say it's, its influence has, has waned in the last few years. Um, what I would say is this, this is the opportunity now um, post-Brexit where, where the UK can uh, really be a force for good on the world stage, which is, I know, something that, uh, that the, uh, the FCDO are really wanting to achieve and champion. Mm. Um, it's this ability to really still underpin European defence and its commitments to NATO, whilst also seeking these new ambitious opportunities particularly Indo-Pacific, and the this tilt to the Indo-Pacific is a central uh, theme uh, in the integrated review. Uh, and it really looks at, uh, you know, the the, uh, the emerging markets, the technology markets, uh, and uh, increased trade opportunities with countries including, you know, uh, Vietnam, Thailand, India, Japan, right. South Korea. Um, and it's really making the most of those opportunities. Yes, and I think that is a possibility. But I'm talking more not so much really about trade uh, influence. I'm talking more about kind of political influence, if you like, you know, because I don't really see um, Britain. I mean, I don't really see the UN doing much of anything at the moment. So Britain being on, you know, the, the, the UN Security Council doesn't seem to be that relevant. Um, not being in the EU, it doesn't bother me either. But but I don't see where the British influence is kind of being taken seriously. Okay, uh, so the political influence you can consider um, with regards to multilateral organisations, uh, and again, I'll use the the Indo-Pacific as a region just just for a yeah. quick uh, a quick example of that. Um, so, for example, the UK are in the process, uh, or they will soon be in the process of formally submitting uh, application for the CPTPP, which is the uh, trading bloc um, that isn't political like the EU uh, across the Indo-Pacific. Um, so that's a that's a really good opportunity. Mm. The um, they're going to be increasing. Um, opportunities with ASEAN as well, so the uh, the Southeast Asian states, um, and that's a political organisation, and that's very much seen as a sort of counter to Chinese uh, revisionism within Southeast Asia more broadly. Yeah. Um, there's also the Carrier Strike Group. Now, even though the Carrier Strike Group is a real Navy asset, um, and it's uh, it's setting it's setting off in in May for the Indo-Pacific, um, it will be incorporating a lot of uh, that soft power and the, the political um, alliances. Uh, to really send a voice uh, and a, a combined message to China that uh, it can't uh, continue to uh, militarise the South China Sea in particular. Um, and there are nations, uh, chiefly the UK, uh, the United States and Australia amongst them, mm. who will seek to counter that. Right. It's interesting, isn't it? So, I mean, what relevance will there be to the EU if they continue with this kind of rather um, petulant, sort of spiteful um, attitude that they seem to be taking towards the UK at the moment? Presumably that's going to wear off at some point. I don't know. You, you'd, you'd like to hope so. Um, I think with the EU, uh, they're going to come under a lot of criticism, uh, sustained uh, criticism going forward in, in the wake of this. Um, it's already received a large backlash. And I think interestingly as well, you can see it from a lot of uh, the, the pro-Remain uh, voices in the UK have actually uh, voiced yeah, they... uh, quite surprising uh, discontent. And it'll be interesting to notice um, sort of by the end of the year, the difference in the UK public's attitude with the EU. Oh, I think there's no question that people are now looking at the EU in a very different way and looking at them as mm. if, it, you know, we're so glad we're out of it now because look at what they're doing. And if we had been stuck in it, who knows what the vaccine situation would have been in this country, you know? I mean, I heard, I've said this earlier on the show, I heard an EU official this morning talking on a radio interview where he said, you know, we have literally given Britain mil billions of vaccines which is completely and utterly untrue. It was nothing to do with the EU. It was all to do with no, Astra exactly. AstraZeneca, who happened to have a factory exactly. in Europe. But it wasn't that the European Union has suddenly gifted us all these vaccines. And this guy was going, and Britain has given us none. And we should be, give, you know, you should be sharing more of your vaccines with the rest of the European Union. And I'm sitting there thinking, well, why? Sorry, what would we do that for? No, absolutely. Um, I think this, this couldn't have happened at a, at, at a better time, really, for the UK. You know, if this was six months earlier, uh, there would have there would have been uh, there would have been issues there. So I think it really sort of serves to highlight um, really 
just just how how wise of a decision it was. Mm. Uh, and thankfully, the opportunities now it comes with not being in such a such a political block as as the EU. Right. Definitely. And what about the new president of the United States of America, Joe Biden? What's his view mm. likely to be? Uh, you know, not just of of Europe, but of the UK, of Ireland, and and of, of China. Because I mean, while he's been in office now for over a month, he hasn't made a great deal of noise about his international intentions. No, you're quite right. Um, the last month or two in Washington has been quite muted, and that was understandable for uh, for their domestic political reasons, not least uh, their own COVID, um, uh, their own COVID reaction, but also the uh, the domestic political scene in Washington is still quite tense from from January. Yeah. Um, what has been interesting, the, the 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 few sound bites that have come out of Washington have been quite positive. So, for example, um, uh, Secretary Blinken, his uh, his Secretary of State, uh, he. Uh, He's uh, he's condemned as uh, as a genocide the uh, the human rights uh, the gross human rights abuses in in Xinjiang against the Uyghur uh, diaspora and that's really something that the UK is is, is really starting to uh, fail on in my opinion it really needs to join both the US and Canada in in, uh, in classifying it as a as a genocide which by the uh, by the classification it does meet those requirements yeah um, so that's an interesting development uh, regarding the United Kingdom um, he has voiced. Uh, not, not exactly concerned, but the uh, the ability for the UK to still act uh, as that useful bridge between Washington and Brussels, um, it can still do so if you consider the UK's role in NATO. It's yeah. the second largest military spender in NATO, and it is NATO that underpins European defence and security, not the European Union. Right. So I think the UK's role within NATO, which uh, is obviously strengthened with the recent announcement of the, the increase in defence spending, um, that will be strengthened. And uh, that's something that I know for a fact that uh, President Biden and the, um, uh, the US administration uh, will be quite keen uh, to, to see going forwards. It, one of their priorities regarding Europe, and again, this is where the UK can help, um, is trying to uh, trying to get Europeans to uh, foot more of the bill and basically take care of European defence more um, than than the US. And this is, like I say, this is something the UK can have an active part in. Mm. So going forwards, that's going to be quite positive. Yes. When we spoke um, the other week, you were talking about an increase in sort of cyber defence. Is that likely to have come out in any way today, do you think, in another form, you know, in terms of what, um, you know, Britain's role globally is going to be like? Obviously, there's there's going to be a quite a, an inference there, I would assume, on, 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 on technology and on tech. And of course, we've got that kind of Huawei thing hanging around from China um, and technology um, and, and sort of cyber attacks and all sorts of other things that come from other parts of the world. Presumably, he's going to mention that. Uh, no, absolutely. So cyber and cyberspace features uh, quite heavily in uh, in today's report. Um, it will be included even more so um, in next week's defence paper. So one of the interesting differences with cyber going forwards is it's going to be classified under uh, the military, uh, the defence budget rather than the intelligence budget. Uh, so it will come under um, directly under uh, strategic command and the uh, the national cyber uh, centre, which will be uh, created uh, going forwards as the national cyber strategy, which will be in uh, in autumn. Um, and really what today's uh, paper and next week's defence paper, uh, more importantly, will lay out for cyber are the crucial questions that will need to be addressed and answered before the autumn's national cyber strategy. Um, but yes, cyber will feature quite heavily. Yeah. And as far as um, the way that China will react to this, I mean, what do they... I mean, they keep their cards pretty close to their chest, I suppose, in, in, in general. But I mean, I did notice that, that they complained, the Chinese diplomats complained in Germany about the publication of a book, a children's book, I think it was last week, uh, which was pulped effectively because they said that uh, they didn't like the idea that it referred to the virus of coronavirus coming from China. Now, I think uh, one of the big differences you can see with uh, with regarding China is uh, its differences in, in attitude uh, from uh, from London and Berlin. Uh, Germany taking much more uh, appeasing tone um, with, with China, which is disappointing and it only fails the, the EU bloc more broadly. Mm. Uh, so the UK do have that firmer, even though, uh, mixed messaging from today, but they do have that firmer voice where it needs. Uh, regarding the Chinese reaction, I don't think there'll be much of a reaction per se from from this from this paper from this report. Um, like you say, they keep their cards close to their chest. What I do expect is they will be um, quite. Uh, they'll have a, they'll have a presence for sure with uh, with regards to the carrier strike group uh, when it goes through the Indo-Pacific. So in particular, the South China Sea uh, and the East China Sea, uh, we can expect uh, we can expect a Chinese military reaction uh, from that, including, for example, jets flying over. Uh, most likely submarine activity as well, shadowing them, right. um, and uh, definitely trying to uh, to interfere with like uh, the electronic warfare and electronic communications. But regarding this paper and uh, you know Britain's strategy going forwards, I think this is possibly why um, the cynic in me will uh, will believe that this is why the uh, 
the the almost the the extended branch, the olive branch regarding Chinese investments, mm. um, is to potentially uh, double down uh, the Chinese reaction, particularly economically. Excellent stuff, Robert. Thanks very much indeed, Robert Clark, Defence Research Fellow there at the Henry Jackson Society, talking about Boris Johnson's speech, which is upcoming uh, in about ten minutes' time. We expect it to start uh, at the House of Commons, where he is going to basically be talking about why the vaccine shows that we and the world need Britain to be global. Um, he says, "I was. It was in September in a piece he's written in the Times today uh, last year that I first felt the stirrings of optimism about the coronavirus vaccine. I was at the Edward Jenner Institute in Oxford, standing behind a scientist as she looked." at magnified blood samples and he talks about how it was that the Oxford vaccine kind of came to be and how uh, brilliant it's all been for Britain which it has obviously been the problem I've got with Boris and his views of the world and how globally he wants Britain to be uh, is that tacked onto it is always this kind of green industrial revolution I mean they were supposed to be um, opening up a coal mine uh, to create 500 jobs up in the northeast of England that apparently now is not going ahead and they're saying that they'll be able to create 20 times that number of jobs uh, literally by opening up the green economy and the green industrial revolution. And I'm not convinced at all by any stretch of the imagination that that is going to be the way forward. Uh, and obviously, if you are going to make this country zero carbon, which is what they say they want it to be, um, what does that mean for the rest of the world? What does it mean for China? What does it mean for India? What does it mean for the United States of America? All of these places which will not be in any way, shape or form, zero carbon whatsoever. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.